0: I think the reason maybe why we're not seeing the harvest is because we're not practicing abundant gospel sowing. Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Have you ever had a thought, I'm missing something, or just a thought something's not exactly right, um, and you can't, you really can't shake that feeling? Well, I've had that feeling sometime about our church family. We're missing something. Something's a bit off. And I had this one Sunday in between. Resurrection Sunday and next week our missions emphasis Sunday is coming up. And I had this one Sunday I didn't really have anything planned. And so back, I guess, back in December, whenever I was planning out the year, I remember thinking, well, I'll just wait on that Sunday and I'll say, Hey, what is what do you want me to speak on, God? And I'll just I'll look for I'll just look to listen to the Spirit about what he wants me to speak on. And uh, as I did that this last couple of weeks, actually, I kept coming back to this feeling that I have that something is missing, that, that something's not exactly where it ought to be. And so I kind of want to talk about that this morning. In the, in the letters that Jesus wrote to seven churches, uh, you remember that at the beginning of the Revelation, he, he wrote seven letters to seven churches. And in uh, those letters, he would always begin like this, at least in most of them anyway. He'd begin like this. Wow, you guys got this right. And uh, I think there's some things that Jesus would say to us that we've gotten right. And if I could, let me just encourage you with them. I think... um, Can somebody go ask them, make sure they turn the water off for the baptistry? Because it'll keep filling up if they don't. I... um, I think Jesus would have some things he'd say to us that he'd commend us for. I think Jesus would commend us for our devotion to the authority of the apostles' teaching. That's You know, the apostles' teaching has been bound up for us in what we call our Bible, right? And I believe that Jesus would commend us for our devotion to its authority, the devotion we've had all along and devotion we still have. In Acts 2.42, it says, of the first church, that says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were, uh, uh, they were zealous for it, for its authority. And, 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 it's, and I think we are too. I think we're devoted to that and we're zealous for that and its application in our life. We're devoted to following it wherever it leads us. And, and we have made teaching the Bible the center one of the center parts of our gathering here on Sunday mornings. I imagine Jesus would also commend us for our patience and trusting him to provide for us as a church. Over the years, you know, we've managed to build some facilities that we felt like we needed. We trusted in the gifts he's given us, and we gave our time and our abilities and our effort to build them. We trusted him patiently for his timing to build them. We never borrowed any money for any of that, and I think Jesus would commend us for that. Not that there's, not that there's any, there's no sin associated with borrowing money, but there is some negativity in the Bible associated with borrowing money. It says the, the borrower becomes the slave of the lender. So we've waited patiently on the Lord, and I think that he would commend us as a family for that over these years. I believe Jesus would commend us for our generosity. Honestly, everyone, when when I see how generous you have been over the last 35 years, it it continues to amaze me. Now, Ann told me, make sure you say at this point, I have absolutely no idea what any of you give individually. I just want you to know that I don't, right? Um, But I'm talking about what we've given as a church family. We're, We're only 200 people gathered on Sundays, and we have given literally hundreds of thousands of dollars to the things that we believe God wanted us to do the building of our facilities. We give 10% of every dollar that comes into missions. We give another 10% of every dollar that comes in uh, to buy food and medicine for, for people who need it in the Congo. We uh, we give other money to missions, and we provide for our missionaries in our budget, and you've met the needs of our church family, and your gifts sent our team recently overseas. And honestly, I believe that Jesus would be would be pleased he'd commend us and commend you for your generosity to his kingdom. I hope Jesus would commend us for our love for each other. I think he would. So much in the New Testament, uh, it speaks of the love of God's people being at the center of his or at the core of his kingdom. We love one another. In fact, in, fact, in his Bible, in the apostles' teaching, it tells us that we're only fooling ourselves if we think we love God, but we don't love each other. You know, if we don't love the brothers, God says, you don't love me. And I think we do love each other. I think we, I think he would commend us for that. We care for each other's needs. We hold each other up. We forgive one another. We believe the best of each other. It seems to me we do love one another and that he would commend us for that. But there is still something missing, I think, that that he would want us to, uh, he would want us to Examine. I think Jesus would challenge us, uh, and He would desire for some change in us, that we might improve both individually and corporately as a church family. This past week, I was reading my assignments for my class, the Perspectives class, and um, and it was on church planting movements. Let me tell you what a church planting movement is. A church planting movement takes place when there is a rapid multiplication of disciples that results in the rapid multiplication of indigenous churches that plant more churches. And it sweeps through a people group or a population segment. Is that on the screen? Leave that up there for a little bit, okay? Um, indigenous means it's a multiplication of churches that are from that community. Or So like if we had a rapid multiplication of disciples in Surrey with a rapid multiplication of churches in Surrey, and we said they're indigenous to Surrey, they'd be just made up of Surrey people, right? Of just us. Not people coming from without and helping us necessarily. They'd just be rising up from uh, from within our community of people. In the book of Acts, it's really evident that there is a church planting movement at the beginning of the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 2, verse 41, the disciples have been in endued in, in with the Holy Spirit. He's fallen upon them. He's come upon them. And they've left the room, and they're out prophesying and praising God in all kinds of languages, and many believe, and Peter steps forward and preaches that great message of Acts chapter 2. And, uh, and in verse 41, it says, those who accepted his message were baptized, about 3,000 were added to their number. And everyone agrees in those early decades of the church, believers met in homes. They didn't congregate in big buildings and sit in rows like we do, listening to one primary Bible teacher like we are now. And this is not meaning to say there's anything wrong with this at all, but that's not how it was done. They didn't have this mechanism, this method of of gathering for worship. They met in homes. And when they met in homes, we learn what they did. So in verse 42, after 3,000 had believed, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had a need." They met in homes, probably 10 to 20 people. Maybe they grew to as big as 30, but most folks believe that an average probably would have been about 20 people in a home. So most of those 3,000 new believers in Acts chapter 2, they were from all over the world. They had come to Jerusalem for the Passover. Maybe they had come just for Pentecost. Maybe they had come for the whole 50 days, and they were there. You remember when, when Peter preached, or when they were out there, you know, proclaiming and praising God in all these languages, it said that people from, and it names all these different places, and they were hearing, they were hearing the good news of the kingdom being proclaimed in their language. Remember that? And uh, so most everyone agrees that probably most of that 3,000 people, they went home. They went back to Thessalonica, or they went back to I wish I had looked it up. All the different places where they came from, Bithynia, I think, was one of them, and just from all over the the world, right? They went home. So let's just say, most of those three thousand of Acts chapter two went home, and they took the good news of the kingdom with them. But let's just say, and I'm I'm picking an arbitrary number, but let's just say two hundred of those disciples, those new disciples, stayed in Jerusalem. That means that if you make twenty per per household, I mean, per uh, home church, right? For for church, that would have mean ten new churches. Ten new churches were started after that message by Peter. But, but let's, let's keep going. Let's see what happens in the book of Acts. So in verse 46, it says, "...and day to day they were attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." So here we've got 3,000 after Peter's preaching, but it doesn't just stop there. Day by day, people are responding to, to Jesus and joining this band of people who are following Jesus. Acts chapter 4, verse 4, and we're just talking about a few years. So there's this rapid multiplication of believers. But many, verse Acts 4, 4, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So how many new disciples are there? Five thousand? That's not a rhetorical question. How many disciples do you think there are? It Says the number of men came to five thousand. You think it's just men? No, man. The women. I mean, you women are more spiritual than us. There's probably eight thousand women, right, that came to faith, right? No, I'm, I'm kidding. But if there's five thousand men, let's just assume there's five thousand women too. That's ten thousand people have come to Christ in just a short amount of time. If there's if there's twenty per house, and we're talking about if we're talking about five thousand, I think that's uh, that's five hundred new churches. If it's ten thousand, that's like ten uh, like uh, like a thousand new churches. The the church, big C, was exploding in Jerusalem. Disciples were rapidly multiplying throughout the city, and with, as these people came to Jesus, they were being, they were being joined together in these, in these home churches where they're devoting themselves to four things. The apostles teaching, to praying together, to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread, you know, most people believe it, it refers to the Lord's Supper. And it very well could be, and I think it does too. But I just have the sense that it's probably the Lord's Supper and just being together and having meals together. They're, they're doing life together. And it wasn't stopping. So in chapter five, verse 14, and we're just talking about a few years, everyone, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women multitudes of men and women are joining the band of believers in Jesus. And and the church is just growing exponentially with these these disciples. They're multiplying. And these churches are multiplying. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. There's this explosion of disciples in Jerusalem, and there's this explosion of indigenous churches that are rapidly multiplying because there's this rapid multiplication of disciples. And one more time, what are they doing? They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They're devoting themselves to prayer, to fellowship, and to breaking bread together. And the apostles' teaching, by the way, it included the Old Testament, I'm sure, but the apostles' teaching is bound up for us in the New Testament. They are devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And and since then, throughout the generations, the church, and I feel certain this is true. I mean, I can't go back and prove it because we didn't keep records, right? But I feel certain this has been true. There have been rapid multiplication of disciples throughout the centuries and throughout the millennia. And with the rapid multiplication of disciples, there have been rapid multiplication of indigenous churches, and more and more churches have been planted. Now over the last 30 years, missiologists have began to keep track of this. They began to record these things. Let me encourage you. In East Asia, a missionary reported, I launched my three-year plan in November 2000, 23 years ago. My vision was to see 200 new churches started among my people group over the next three years. But four months later, we had reached that goal. After only six months, we already had 360 churches planted and more than 10,000 new believers baptized. Now I'm asking God to enlarge my vision. Chinese Christian, and I'm going to butcher this, the Qingong County of Heilongjiang Providence. If you're Chinese, yeah, yeah, I have no idea what I just said. Planted 236 new churches in a single month. In 2002, one church planting movement in China brought 15,000 new churches and baptized 160,000 new believers in a single year in a single population area during the decade of the 1990s christians in latin american in a latin american country overcame relentless government persecution to grow from 235 churches to more than 4000 churches with more than 30,000 converts awaiting baptism wow 30,000 people waiting to be baptized a pastor in Western Europe wrote, Last year, my wife and I started 15 new house churches. As we left for a six-month stateside assignment, we wondered what we'd find when we returned. It's wild. We can verify at least 30 churches now, but I believe that it could be two to three times that many. After centuries of hostility to Christianity, many Central Asian Muslims are now embracing the gospel. In Pakistan, the past decade has seen more than 13,000 uh Kazakhs come to faith, worshiping in more than 300 new Kazakh churches, indigenous Kazakh churches. A missionary in Africa reported it took us 30 years to plant four churches in this country. We've started 65 new churches in the last nine months. In the heart of India, in the state of Madhya Pradesh, uh, one k- church planting movement produced 4,000 new churches in less than seven years. Everywhere in India, uh, the Kui K U I people of Orissa started nearly 1,000 new churches during the 1990s. In 1999, they baptized more than 8,000 new believers. By 2001, they were starting a new church every 24 hours. One more. In outer Mongolia... And this was a really neat story uh, in in the readings that we had to do. But in outer Mongolia, a church planting movement saw more than 10,000 new followers. Another movement in inner Mongolia counted more than 50,000 new believers, all during the decade of the 1990s. Over the past two decades, that would be 2000 to now, many millions of new believers have entered into Jesus' kingdom through this rapidly multiplying disciples and consequently church Uh, planting movements. They're happening all over the world. They have been happening. I'm suggesting that they've happened throughout all the millennia, right? So that brings me to what I sense is missing in our church. What God, I think, would have us improve, what he would have us maybe change. And it's not what you might think. I don't think that Jesus would say, I have this against you, Castle family. You have not been a part of a rapidly multiplying movement of disciples and churches. I don't think that that's what he would say. Not exactly, anyway. David Garrison is uh, part of our IMB. He's uh, the vice president of strategy coordination and mobilization. And he, he went about studying these rapidly multiplying church growth movements. And he wrote about it. And, uh, and what he discovered in, in his study was that there were 10 elements that were universal to all of these, these church planning movements. There was 10 elements that were universal. Okay, I, I want to share five with you today. I want to share five of them because uh, these five, I think, would be most germane to our situation and they are five that I think Jesus would ask us to work on. So let me share with you what the five are. So again, let me, let me just preface before I go on that, that this, I'm not doing exposition of Scripture here. I'm not taking a passage and trying to teach you what God's teaching us in that passage. So in that sense, I, I've always struggled a little bit with that because, but, but you know, to, to quote Paul, I have the Spirit. I've been praying. I've been asking for God to speak to us. So you take all of this with that understanding, right? This is this is Jimmy's challenge from, from his own walk with God and, and just our trying to examine our church family. In fact, let's pray together. Can you pray with me? Lord, as I talk about these five things, if there's something here that we need to hear individually, but more importantly, maybe as a church family, would you, Spirit, now... Take liberty. Take liberty to speak to our hearts. Amen. The first thing that David and and, and I'm going to go from David's thoughts to mine. So just know that I'm I'm, I'm going from what David said to what I'm saying. So, but one of the first things, the first thing that David points out that he found is universal to these church, these rapidly growing movements of disciples and churches, is prayer. He didn't mean these perfunctory prayers that we might offer at our mealtime. And I don't mean to be pejorative there. I I tell you, we can pray at our meals and we can be absolutely thankful and it can come from a thankful heart. But all too often it's we're praying because that's what we do. It's part of what we do. Right. And we pray, but we're not all that engaged. I'm not talking about that. He's not talking about that. What he says he discovered in these rapid movements of church plants, church planting and disciple making, he said, it is that people are just desperate, if you would, to connect with God and ask God to move in such a way that they reach their community, that they change their world. They're praying as if prayer really matters and actually affects things. And and in each one of these, these these multiple, these rapid multiplications of disciple church, that's their commitment to pray together to seek the power of God. Now, this is where Jimmy's notes come in. I don't believe, and in fact, I know I'm not, David's not talking about their individual personal prayer. He's talking about them coming together to pray together to seek Jesus for his power in their church families and in their work. You may not realize this, but the book of Acts highlights the church praying together. Now, I am not insinuating or saying that believers in the New Testament didn't pray individually by themselves. I am sure they did, and I think there are some illustrations of that in the New Testament. But in the New Testament, what we see highlighted is the church praying together. So chapter 1, verse 14, they all were continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up amongst the brothers and sisters, the number of people who were together. It was about 120. In chapter 2, verse 42, they met in homes and they devoted themselves to prayer. They didn't meet in homes and then each go to their individual room to pray separately. They devoted themselves to praying together. In chapter 4, verse 23, uh, John and Peter have been arrested by the Sanhedrin for a second time. They are released. And when they are released, they go. This is what it says, verse 23. After they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that's in them. And then they go on and they're praying together. And they're quoting Scripture to God. And they're claiming what God says in the Scripture. And they're praying for boldness and saying, God, give us boldness to go out here and speak the truth, even though they've told us not to do it. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God boldly. Verse chapter 6, verse 4. The apostles devoted themselves to the ministry of prayer. I don't think it means that the apostles devoted themselves to Peter going to his upper room to pray, John going to his upper room to pray. I don't think that's what it means. I think that's our Western mindset, of our individualistic Western mindset. Chapter 12, verse 5: the church is praying fervently for Peter. You remember this? They're all assembled praying, and Peter is actually released. And when he goes there, they can't believe that God has answered them, right? And but they're praying together. In chapter 13, verse 3, the elders were praying together when God sent, said, send out Barnabas and Paul. In chapter 16, verse 25, Paul and Silas are in prison and they're praying together out loud. Again, my point is not that they're not, they don't pray alone. That's not my point. My point is that they prayed together. And, and that's what David found true in these, these rapid multiplications of disciples and churches. They, they met and they prayed together. It wasn't periphery. It wasn't just something that a handful of people did. It was something the church did. And can I speculate here? And please, you know, I'm not, I'm, this is directed at me as much as it's directed at you guys, but why is prayer, corporate prayer, us coming together to pray? Why is it so non-existent in local churches? Why is that so? Let me speculate. One of them, I think, is our Western individualism. We say, "I can pray alone better than I can pray in a group," or "I can pray alone. I don't need to pray in a group." I've tried to make a case now, whether I've been successful at it or not. I've tried to make a case that I don't think that's what God desires. I think he, not that He doesn't. He desires for you to pray by yourself. I'm sure, but He desires for us to come together as His people and pray together as His people. Maybe it's the words of Jesus. They contributed to this mindset that we, that we don't need to pray together. That praying together is, it's, it's just a side thing, if, if anything. He, he, Jesus, remember he told us, he said, you know, when you're praying, don't go stand on the street corner and pray out loud. He said, go into your closet and pray there. And your father who sees you in secret will reward you in secret. And I think we read that and we say, hey, Jesus is telling us to always go into our closet and pray in the, pray in the closet. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying, hey, if you've got to pray by yourself, don't go stand out on the corner where everybody can see you pray by yourself. Go into your closet and pray there because your father sees you when you pray by yourself. Don't pray so others will notice you. But he's not telling us not to pray together. He's not telling us to, to not come together in prayer. Maybe it's, listen, I think this one might be it. We don't see much return for our praying together. We don't see much return. Does God really answer us? Does it really make a difference if we come together and pray? I'm pretty convinced that, you know, for myself and all of us that we struggle with, does our gathering to pray actually make a difference? Does it actually move the hand of God? Whatever the reason, I don't think we have a prayer conviction as a church. So remember, this, this message is, I, I think there's something wrong. And, and I think this is one area where Jesus would want us to, to tweak this a little bit, to, to maybe just work on this a little bit, to come together and pray and seek his face and seek his power for the rapid multiplication of disciples and churches. The second thing that David noticed in these movements was an abundant gospel sowing. It's, it's just amazing to me how God just orchestrates, I think, things to, in my heart, confirm anyway. I'm standing up here pretty confirmed because of two things, which I'll tell you in just a moment. But the second thing he noticed was abundant gospel sowing. Rapid multiplication of disciples and churches results when people talk about Jesus. The law of harvest applies here. If you sow abundantly, you reap abundantly. If you sow meagerly, you're going to reap meagerly. And what he found was that in these rapid multiplications, everyone is just talking about Jesus. Everyone is talking about him. The harvest is plentiful. I think the reason maybe why we're not seeing the harvest is because we're not practicing abundant gospel sowing. Now, sowing can be mass evangelism. I mean, it can have something to do like radio or whatever. But, but in these church movements, it's built on personal sharing of vivid stories of how God is working in the lives and, and of these disciples and changing them by his power. And this is where another area I think Jesus might say to us, Castle family, you have to work on this. I don't think Jesus would commend us for abundant gospel sowing. I think he would talk to us that we need to really kind of step this up. Now, my teacher on Monday night last week was Kevin King. He shared this thing that he called, he called it living out loud. And and Kevin said, and and I, I agree with him, Kevin said, and I think this is what Tom was saying. Your testimony is a confirmation. I feel like I'm saying something that God wants us to hear. But Kevin said, we have two spheres in our life. One sphere over here is our religious Jesus sphere, right? And we'll talk about Jesus in this sphere. We'll talk to each other about Jesus. We'll be in home group and we'll talk about Jesus. And we'll just we'll talk about Jesus pretty freely and clearly in this area over here. But over here this is the other sphere of our life. And the other sphere of our life is our our neighbors and it's our uh, maybe our friends that aren't part of the kingdom yet or maybe it's our coworkers and we don't Really talk about Jesus in this sphere over here. And, uh, and Kevin said what God showed him and what I want to really encourage us, he says, we have to bring these two spheres together and we have to live out loud in this one sphere of our life. And what he meant by living out loud is we need to live our Christian faith out loud with our neighbors and our friends and, and our coworkers and um and he realized in this sphere over here I'm never bringing Jesus in unless I'm trying to I'm trying to share the gospel with them or I'm trying to you know confront them with their need to follow Jesus he said I just really wasn't bringing Jesus in this sphere and he said I decided to change that I decided to change that I wanted to just start talking about Jesus in the whole sphere of my life just bringing him up and one of the things that he, he said he tried to do was when he's in this sphere over here, which is now this sphere for him, but when he's in this sphere over here and his coworkers telling him about something that's happened in his life or something that's hard, he'll say to his coworker, Hey man, can I pray for you? Can I pray for you? Or he would just try to talk about things that Jesus had done in his life to this sphere over here, right? Kind of like what Tom said. I realized I'm not really, I'm not doing anything in this sphere over here. And I, and I want to do something in this sphere. And what Kevin said that he found was, listen to this, as he spoke out loud, lived out loud about Jesus in this sphere, so many opportunities would open up to go, to go further he would say something to a woman at the gym that he met. He would say, and I can't remember exactly how this story went, but he said something to her, and instead of being offended, she asked him a follow-up question, and he wasn't trying to share Jesus with her. He's just bringing his Jesus into the everyday life conversation, right? And uh, Kevin told us a story that uh, I want to share with you. I mean, I've cried just about every time I've told this story, but uh, Kevin Kevin told a story about being in a church and, and, and talking about this living out loud and bringing these two spheres of our life into one and, and just living out loud for Jesus in this sphere. And, and so he was at this church and he had like a two-hour drive home afterwards. So he's driving home afterwards. About an hour into his drive, he gets a call from the pastor of the church that he's just spoke at. and uh, And the pastor says, hey, Kevin, I got to tell you what just happened. Tom was in the meeting and Tom heard you speak. I'm making up the name. I can't. I, I can't. I think he made up the name, so it's okay if I make up one too. But anyway, so Tom went home, and when he got home, his neighbor was out in the yard picking up sticks. And I guess his neighbor's feeling like God wants him to learn this this living out loud thing, right? So he walks over to his neighbor. He says, "Hey, man, how are you doing?" And, and um, the guy says, oh, I'm okay." And and Joe looks at him, and he and he knows he's not okay. He says, are you sure you're okay? You don't seem like you're okay." And his neighbor said, Well, no, I'm not. He said, My kids won't talk to me. He said, My marriage is falling apart. He said, I'm really not okay. And, and, and Joe, I called him Joe, right? So Joe um, looks at his neighbor and he said, Can I pray for you? And his neighbor breaks down and begins to weep. And Joe prays for his neighbor. And after this is over, he goes inside, Joe goes inside, calls his pastor. And this is what he says to his pastor. He says, you know, I've lived next to that neighbor for 10 years, and I've never mentioned Jesus in his presence. And uh, so his pastor calls Kevin to tell Kevin that story. Folks, I think Joe's testimony represents way too many of us that we just don't bring Jesus from this sphere into this sphere and we just talk about him and we and we, we, we share what he's doing in our lives and we, we talk about how he's changing our life and we talk about the things that he's doing. We, we just need to bring these two spheres together and we need to live out loud. But that's what David found out when he looked at these groups. Everybody's just living out loud their faith. Number three, These groups intentionally sought to build or to plant, grow, establish house churches. In the rapid multiplication of disciples, they were intentional about starting these groups in homes where they could plug people in to them. And again, I want to say to you, we're not talking about the kind of Western-style church that we have here where we come on Sunday morning, there's a big crowd, we sit in rows, and we sing, and we listen to to, to a, a primary Bible teacher. And again, I'm not trying to be negative about that. I believe in what we're doing. I believe this is positive. I believe we should do this, right? But they were committed to getting people into reproducible Small home groups, home churches, 10 to 30 people, where the people, meeting in homes and storefronts, where the people would sit face to face and they would do these four things. They would be devoted to the apostles' teaching, they would be devoted to praying together, they would be devoted to fellowshipping with one another, and they would be devoted to breaking bread together. Now, the way we do our gatherings is a method. It's 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 the way it's developed over the years, the culture of it. Um, and it continues to change and morph a little bit. I think if I could just kind of digress a little bit, I think one of the reasons why this hour is the most segregated hour in America is because there's a different culture that's grown up in the black community and the white community as far as believers are concerned and how they do church. And this culture is comfortable for you, and that culture might be comfortable for someone else. And it's hard to get out of our comfort zones and, and, and change cultures and, and all like that. But you know something about the black and the white community? We share this in common. Our culture is to come sit in rows and to sing and to have one primary Bible teacher. We, we don't really do the face-to-face thing. But I I They were intentional. They were intentional. Of, of getting these believers into small groups of people where they could interact with other believers and they could devote themselves to these four things. Rapid multiplication of disciples happens when we multiply these house churches. Which comes first, the house church or the disciple? And the answer is yes. <laughs> you know, the answer is yes. You're right. They both happen simultaneously. I think Jesus is, is pleased with our Sunday gathering. I do. And I think we've tried to make some commitments as a church family to, to make this not just be a show uh, and not just be a few people. We've tried to do some things like allow testimonies, encourage you to give testimonies on Sunday and all that kind of thing. But let's really face it. Let's be honest. biblical community takes place best, I think, this is where you you can. I might be wrong, but I think biblical community takes place best when it's in a small group of people who meet regularly together, who pray together, who read and study the apostles' teachings together, and who um, break bread together and who fellowship together, where all of us can use our gifts and our abilities, and leaders can can lead. We we call them home groups in our church. Um, I, I told our home group one time, I, I really want to call this a home church, right? Um, I'd love to have our home groups be visited by our elders. And we are we're, we're just got lots of home groups just starting, and you know, all over. And, and, and they're just growing up, and they're facilitating this fourfold ministry of devotion. You know, and, and this is what happened in those churches. And somehow, someway, I think God would want us to tweak that and make that somewhat of a priority for us as a church family. Number four, last to go by quick, so hang in there with me. Uh, The fourth is scriptural authority. They found that, that in these church planning movements and disciple planning movements or whatever, it's the Word of God that's centered. If there's no commitment to the Bible, there's no rapid multiplication of disciples. If there's no commitment to the Bible, there's no rapid multiplication of churches. Right? These things happen because there is a sense which God has spoken to us in His Bible. But the thing that David found about these churches is it's not just that there's a a commitment to the authority of the Scripture. There's a commitment to say, God, what are you saying in here to me? What do you want me to do? How do I respond? What act of obedience must I do from what I'm learning when we come together? And so these groups would often, they would leave each time. They would leave their gathering and they would say, what are you going to do this week in response to what you've heard? What are you going to do? And the next week when they came back together, they would say, how did it go this week with, with the thing that you were going to obey Jesus in? You know, I've already told you, I think Jesus would commend us for our defense of his word and its authority. If there was any nuance that he might ask us to improve on, it might be, hey, what what are you doing to obey? How are you growing in obedience to the word of God? You know, if I was to take Jesus' statements from Matthew 7, I think it is, why do you call me Lord and not do the things that I say? If I was to put that in our context today, maybe he'd say, why do you call the Bible the word, the inerrant word of God, and not seek to obey it? So if we're not obeying it, we need to obey it. We need to make that center in our church. And, and the last one is, um, they had a commitment to non-vocational leadership. In these movements, the leadership is by the Holy Spirit through men and women who aren't paid to leave. They're just lead. They're just passionate to lead. It's just, it's just coming out of them like a spring of water and they just can't help it. They're not seminary trained. They're not supported vocationally by a church. Uh, they, they fit the profile of the people group where these multiplications are happening. So if you're in an illiterate group of people, these leaders that emerge are illiterate. They can't read, but they can tell stories, and they can learn Bible stories, and they can teach by how they teach, which is through storying, right? The, 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 this leadership that rises up fits the demographic of the people. So, if it's mainly fishermen, then they're going to be fishermen. If it was in Surrey, they'd mainly be Surreyites or Alawites, you know, just people from our from our community. And as the movements unfold, maybe, maybe some vocational people will rise up, but the majority of the movements are led by people, ordinary followers of Jesus, like, like, I'd say you and me, but I'm not, I'm not that, cause I get paid. It'd be just ordinary people like yourself, just using your gifts, being filled with the Holy Spirit, wanting to just see, wanting to live your two spheres together, live out loud in your two spheres at one time. In that past Monday email, I I tried to list all the people that made last Sunday extra special. And I'm sure I left out someone. And if I did, please forgive me. I tried to include everyone. But many of those same groups that made last Sunday special, they make every Sunday special. I honestly don't know if Jesus would commend us or challenge us in this area. But the one thing I I do want to just ask us is is just to maybe ask you gifted leaders, lead. You gifted teachers, teach. Teach. You gifted servers, serve. In other words, let it, let it just well up in you. You can't help but do what you do because of how God has made you. You gifted encouragers, encourage. I don't think Jesus would rebuke us. I don't know that he would rebuke us in any of this, but, but I definitely think he might call us to step up our game and use our gifts so that we might just make disciples in who knows what God might do. So, I'm done. I started this talk by saying, I sense something is missing in our church. I want to pinpoint it. If I were to try to pinpoint what I think that missing thing is, it would be this. It seems to me that we have grown a bit stale. We lack vision and passion and dedication to making more and new disciples of Jesus out in our community. We know it's important to make disciples of the men and women around us. We know it's a big deal to Jesus, and we know theoretically it's a big deal for us. But I just think there's more that we can do and should do. And and I think there's, again, this is I think, I think, I think. So take that for what it is. It's Jimmy thinking, right? I think that we need to ask God to help renew this passion that just... Pushes us up out into the community and with our neighbors and our friends. Not to, I mean, if we can do what Tom did and introduce people to Jesus, I mean, I think that'll come. But if we just begin to live our our faith, our Jesus out loud, our relationship with Jesus out loud, and begin to talk to our neighbors and our friends and, and just talk about Jesus and pray for people and just make Jesus real to everyone and share the stories of how he's changing our life and working in our life and working in our church. If we do this with passion, I think God is going to do something, and will do something even more with us to help us make disciples and maybe impact our community more than it's being impacted. What if we had a pa- what if we had these passion? What if we came together to pray fervently and seek the power of God to make disciples? We would would reconsider the priority of praying together to that end and make it a priority. What if we did that? What if we decided to live our faith out loud and we merge those two spheres and we bring Jesus into our conversations and we pray for people around us? Jesus would would become the friend we want everyone to know. What if we would connect in a house church, a small home group, start a home group. You start a home group. You say, I can't start one. Sure you can. I'll teach you how. I'll teach you how with the Discovery Bible study. Kevin taught me. I'll teach you how. It's really simple. And you're not the teacher. The Holy Spirit is the teacher. You just facilitate it. You just facilitate it. I'm telling you, it's easy. Invite your friends and your neighbors. I've thought about this. I've thought about my neighbors. I've got a lot of neighbors who aren't following Jesus, and they're young. And I've thought about going to them and say, hey, would you come to a Discovery Bible study at my house? Uh, I've wanted to do that. What if we, what if, but what if we just connected ourselves in small home groups where, where we lived out biblical community in a way that it's really kind of hard to do it in a big group like this? What, what if, uh, what if we daily ask God, God, help me obey your Bible. I believe it's your word. Help me obey it. What do, what do I need to change? What do I need to, what do I need to, follow Jesus in more? What do I need to do here to be more like Jesus? Because I want to follow you. What if we ask that question every day? What if we used our gifts and abilities in Jesus' kingdom and thereby became instruments of making disciples? What does Jesus want you and me to do with what you're hearing today? Is there anything at all? And is there anything that you, us, we need to obey more Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed.